It's February 21st. Our title this evening is Romancing the Stone. And uh, I'm happy to not be preaching about cult leader topics or any of the... Tonight is a good night. We have our family here tonight. To have uh, Wendy Schmidt in the house. Hallelujah. Ten years in the making. If you recognize the title to the message, it was a 1984 movie. It had Danny DeVito in it and Michael Douglas and Kathleen Turner. And that's about where my movie repertoire uh, still resides, somewhere in the 80s. So um, that's not a major part of this message. But I think it will become self-evident why the title is what it is. Let's hop right into Luke 8. In verse 15, when you get there, say that you're there. We were amazingly blessed to have a mass, uh, a, a message from Pastor Matthew slap you with the Torah of Piro. And, um, this was one of his, uh, beginning scriptures and helped define the message. And, uh, Luke 8 15. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. So that title of his message was called Baptism and Perseverance. And obviously the message was about... The message was about... I uh, I want to thank Pastor Matt for that message because I thought it was extraordinary. Amen. You know, the word definitely included the concept that when you persevere, you'll produce a good crop. And that's important and that's that was worth camping on and thinking about for a while. Tonight I want to proceed in a little different direction. I want to proceed in a complementary direction to that one. Instead about Instead of speaking about what it is... That you are building for God as a singular focus. I want to focus on what God is building for you during that process. This is a church that is very production oriented. We believe that you show your faith by what you do. What can be missed in that is what God is doing for you because of the faith based obedience. What it allows him to do in your life. Uh, we're going to go from Genesis to Revelation, so you're going to want to get your Bibles ready, change the oil, get the transmission right, whatever it, it takes. But tonight, let's start in Hebrews 11 and verse 18. Nope, not 18, 8. 11, 8. All right, the girls are beating the guys there. Where are the rest of us? Aki. I mean, I mean. In Hebrews eleven eight, we find uh, these words. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Clearly, 
Abraham trusted God. He left on a journey not knowing where he would go. We saw some of that faith this week. It's kind of exciting. To leave your home country, to leave your family, and set out on a destiny that God himself has for you. You know, it was clear that he was displaying faith at every turn. God asked increasingly more of him. He even raised up three generations of people that were in the same mold as he was. If Abraham dug a well, Isaac opened it, you know. God became identified as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What is amazing, though, about this verse in Hebrews is something that we all think we understand. And the truth is, we probably have not contemplated its depths. Hebrews makes the claim in verse 10 that he was looking forward to a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Abraham's life of faith was accomplishing things for God, but it was also looking forward to something designed and constructed by God. We need to not pass by that statement too quickly. It's very easy to dismiss it, to think, oh, Abraham was looking forward to heaven. Can I tell you that's not at all what Abraham was looking forward to. In fact, before we get into this intricate but beautiful subject... We're going to need to pray something. We're going to, while you're in Hebrews, turn to Hebrews 13, and let's pray that the Lord will help work something into us. In Hebrews 13, in verse 20, this will guide the way that we pray. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant, brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work into us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This needs to be our prayer that we're equipped for doing everything good, but more so that he work into us what is pleasing. Kind of like the master's hands, kneading something into the dough, putting something into the mixture. Y'all want to pray? Mighty God, we ask that you would take this opportunity in our lives tonight, Lord, in this congregation, to work into the fabric of our lives what is pleasing to you. Lord, not just the deeds that we do in your name and faith, but also, Lord, that it would accomplish what you're building in our lives. We thank you for the chance to be perfected by you. We thank you, mighty God, for the chance... To be clay in the hands of a potter. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now let's hop into the law. Let's go to Genesis 18. Somebody say there when you were there. (laughs) I noticed when Rob says there, it's like when I was a teenager and I answered the phone. Hey, mom, can I have something to drink? Then the phone would ring and I'd be like, hello. (laughs) Rob's not just there. He's there. (laughs) It's all right. We're all projecting things we want people to see. And the Lord will, uh, the Lord will deal with us about that on a regular basis. I want you to project Christ in every way. Are you in Genesis 18, 10? Then the Lord said, 
I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now, I don't want to get into why he had to say, Sarah, your wife. (laughs) There was another woman that was not his wife that had already had a son. It's bad when you got to be called somebody's daddy, baby's daddy. God is still working in the life of people that are tragically flawed. Isn't that good news? He's still working in situations that have been fouled up beyond all recognition. He's not done just because you think you're done. He created you and he designed you for a purpose. Finding that design and purpose is beautiful in and of itself. But can I tell you, you will never reach the depths of it. God will reveal to you more every year, every decade, every couple decades than you knew before about the beautiful workings of his spirit in your life. The topic here is that they're going to have a son. Now, Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent. It's... My wife listens to a phone call that I'm having in the other room and often advises me on what I should have said or am going to say next. Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years. And Sarah was well past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself and thought, after I am worn out and my master is old, talk about image problems. Will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I'm old? Isn't it interesting that Abraham asked, I'm sorry, that the Lord asked Abraham why Sarah did something? Husbands, you better have a discerning view of your household. The shepherd is supposed to know the condition of his sheep. And uh, God doesn't wait for an answer. <laughs> he simply suggests uh, a solution. Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. We're talking about a matriarch in the faith here. If the Lord's never told you something that it caught you off guard, and you thought, surely not me, Lord. It'll have to be somebody else. You just haven't been in the kingdom long enough. When the men got up to leave, they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation. And all the nations on the earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and its household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and what is just. That's an interesting thing to say to about a man who just had a baby with a woman, not his wife, and whose wife is lying in the presence of God. Not lying like uh, horizontal to the ground. Lying as in speaking in a way that is not quite factual, don't you think? But God saw in Abraham potential. 
He had taken 318 men in his household and he had trained them. He had taken others and instructed them in the right way. There's a part of this verse that we don't talk about very much though. God did choose Abraham so that he would direct his children after him. That is what Abraham could do in faith. But look at the second half of the verse. So that, somebody say, so that. The Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. In other words, there's something that Abraham would do for God. And in the midst, there's something that God would be doing for Abraham. Man, that's not a part of the verse that we think about an uh, an awful lot. Your obedience makes it possible for God to do things on your behalf. And he's got good things planned on your behalf. Your disobedience may prevent him from doing the good things that he has planned for you in advance. How important is it then that we're obedient? Look, at this point in his life, Abraham has been waiting for the promise of God to come about for 25 years. Now, that's an awful lot, don't you think? To be walking about, having left your home, having left your family, because God himself has made you a sevenfold promise, and you have believed it, but for 25 years. The most basic part of the promise has not come about. How difficult is that for you? You read about Abraham's life, and you know how it turns out, so it's, it's easy for us to read about Abraham. But you know, in year 20, Abraham didn't know only five more years and we'll see this. In year 22, he didn't know three more years and we'll see this. In fact, he probably, just like you, wondered many times if he had zigged when he should have zagged. If he got off course in some way so badly that now God was not able to perform what he had promised. But he kept going. Thank you for that word on persistence, Matthew. He knew that he had things to do for the Lord. This verse indicates that in raising his children, something would be done for Abraham. I want to take a minute and just talk to our church as the family that it is. There's probably never been a time here where we had as many little ones on the way. Amen, Randy. Or here, on the way soon. On the way I'm imminent, like the kingdom is imminent. And it's very easy to get caught up in the difficulty of that. I watch Ella carrying around one on her hip and chasing another one. She's got two little leaders being raised. Uh, I remember when Natalie Moloch was chasing Josiah around with a spoon, you know. He wasn't born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He was born with a wooden spoon on his backside. It is difficult uh, to raise children. And yet it's an incredible blessing from God. You think what you're doing is for their future. But if you live long enough, you find out that what you did was also for your future. I'm staring at five children that are mine. Three of them are married now. Two of them already have children. The third one is talking tonight about having children. And if all goes well, 
Someday they'll be taking care of me. Maybe their children will be taking care of me. See, what you're doing now, you believe, is something that you're doing for God, but it is also something that God is doing for you. He's using your obedience today to provide for you something in the future that you haven't begun to conceive of yet. It really is good when you consider what all it means. I want to encourage you about your families. No cost is too high. You miss a meeting, I'm very, very sorry that you have to miss a meeting. Let your husband go to the meeting and come home and teach you. That's the way it's supposed to work anyway. You feel like you're missing out on fellowship? Every ounce of cost will be repaid with something that looks like Christ. I promise that. When we began this ministry, my wife spent many years missing every single sermon so that she could teach the children. Now tonight I'm looking out and I don't see Cassidy in here. I don't see Christy in here because they're with our children. That is an investment that we think we're making for God, but the truth is He is doing something in that for us that we have barely begun to conceive of. Because what is in that children's church right now is what we will contend with the enemy at the city gates with. They are arrows in our hands and we will step on the enemy in many foreign nations with what's in that room right now. So raising children is not a distraction. It's the foundational element of a life that cares more about others than yourself. The most godly thing that we could possibly do, the most selfless thing that we could possibly do is give up comfort, give up time, give up attention, give up whatever it takes to raise our households in the Lord. We come from generations of people that valued a 7 Series BMW over having five children. And because of that, the children that we have are as selfish as the parents they came from. What we need to learn to do is recognize that our present obedience in this matter will provide something in the future that is a gift from God right back to us. Can I tell you when you're 70 years old is way too late to think about whether or not you raise godly children? That horse is already out of the barn, so to speak. Let's look at 2 Samuel 7 and see something in the prophetic section of the Bible. What God tells David here is mind-blowing. And it's another passage that we read over and we're not entirely sure what it means, but we think we know. After the king, this is Second Samuel 7 and verse 1. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a palace of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Sounds like he's got some success guilt, doesn't it? He's been blessed in a lot of ways and he feels bad. I want to do something for the Lord. The third verse. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it. For the Lord is with you. Now I love Nathan. 
But that sounds very, very much like the average preacher today. You're blessed, you got a nice house, you give bigger offerings than almost anybody else. Way, whatever you have in mind, I'm sure it's God. The problem is, is it wasn't God. Look at verse 4. That night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build a house for me to dwell in? You see, Nathan spoke too quickly. Be careful about speaking too quickly. Just because a man has good intentions or you perceive him to have a pure heart does not mean that you have discerned what God's will is in his life. David, like us, wanted to do something noble for the Lord. He wanted to persevere. He wanted to produce. It was kind of a surprise that David's role was to produce a godly son, not to build a temple. Can I tell you it's far easier to build a building than it is to raise godly children? We have electrical problems in here. Right now we're having an air conditioning problem in here. From time to time we even have an infestation problem in here. Some of our four-legged friends run around while we're preaching. That pales in comparison to what it's like to raise teenage boys. They have all of those very same problems. Think on that for a minute. Let's go to 2 Samuel 7 verse 11. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. Who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The emphasis in this passage is that David's role was to raise up a son. In doing so, the Lord would be building a house for David. That's very, very interesting. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. This whole thing started because David was already in a house. So what on earth is God talking about? So he's talking about having children. Well, that's true, but it's also not true. David's got quite a few kids already, more than six. What is God talking about? To start with, as we begin to understand this passage, the word for house in Hebrew is bayit. And bayit can mean house or family. Much the same way that in English we might say, Jennifer is a homemaker. Would you agree Jennifer is a homemaker? No, would you agree Jennifer is a homemaker? Can I tell you that woman cannot drive a nail? She never framed a house. Although once she did help me sheetrock a church. What do we mean when we say homemaker? It's the same kind of play on words. Because the children that are our real house... Came through Jennifer. We call women homemakers when they work at home, when their profession is raising their children. We call that a homemaker. But we don't mean that they pick up a hammer and go work on the house, do we? In Hebrew, the word bayit means both family and it means house. Now, when you consider that the scripture records Amnon is already born, Daniel is already born, Absalom, already born, 
Adonijah, already born. Shephatiah, already born. Ithraim, already born. And it's arguable that some of the ones in Jerusalem were born. David's got more than a few kids already. So what is the Lord talking about building him a house? I want you to see what David gets excited about here. I've always read this and thought David was stoked because he's realizing Solomon's going to build a temple and it's going to be extraordinary. Look at 2 Samuel 7 and verse 21. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. What do you think this great thing is? Wouldn't you think that's building the temple of God on earth? That God has announced it? But it's not. That's not at all what he, what David's talking about. Look at verse 25. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made conserving, concerning your servant and his house. David's not so much excited that a temple's going to be built in his son's life. He's very excited about God building him a house. And as I said, he already has a house he's living in. He already has sons, at least six of them and probably more. Look what comes next. Do as you have promised so that your name will be great forever. Then men will say the Lord Almighty is God over Israel and the house of your servant David will be established before you. Before I read the rest of us, the rest of this, something about the promise that God would raise up a bayit for David, a house or family line for David, so stirred his soul that it made the temple that would be built pale in comparison. Now, when you keep in mind that David personally gave millions of dollars towards the temple, that he spent much of his life raising the materials For the temple. That he and Samuel as Judah preached in Magnify. He and Samuel had plans for the temple. That they passed on to to, uh, Solomon. It's quite a statement to say that David. Got more excited about some kind of spiritual house. That was going to be built for his family line. Than about the very temple itself. Look at verse 27. O Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. Notice he's not talking about the temple at all. So your servant has found courage to offer you this prayer. O sovereign Lord, you are God. Your words are trustworthy. And you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant. That it may continue forever in your sight. For you, O sovereign Lord, have spoken, and with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. David was more excited that God was building something for him than if he got to build something for God. Now tell me that you've read that for many years, and you already understood that. Yeah, I didn't think so, because I haven't. I love the Davidic covenant. I mean, I love it. I, I read this all of the time. It's one of my favorite passages of Scripture. And it took me becoming a grandpa to begin to 
wrap my mind around most of the things that I've done in my life that I was working to do for the Lord were actually God doing something that would bless me. He just could only work through faith-grounded obedience. And if I didn't provide it, there was nothing to work with. If I did provide it, ultimately, it would be a blessing to me. That's pretty incredible, don't you think? David was ecstatic when he realized that God was an architect and a builder and that he was building something for David that went way beyond merely having kids. He already had those. Look at how David begins to speak about this in the Psalms. You go ahead and turn to Psalm 118. And while you're on the way, I want to talk to you about David's life up to this point. Psalm 118 is part of the great Hillel. It became something that people sang throughout Israel's history as they ascended to Jerusalem to go look at the very temple that that was not what David was excited about. As we get to Psalm 118, understand that David had been rejected by Jesse, his father. So when was David ever rejected by Jesse? Well, on more than one occasion. But for sure, on the day that Samuel said, assemble your sons, and David wasn't even called, man, not called to the party at all, not even considered, left with the sheep. He had been rejected by his mother. If you've ever read Psalm 27, David himself says, though my father and mother forsake me, you will not. I don't know what his problem was with his mama, but it happens. He had been rejected by his close friends. In Psalm 55, he talks about those that were his own countrymen with whom he once enjoyed sweet fellowship and they had turned on him like an enemy. He was despised by his older brother. In 1 Samuel 17, he's he's accused of having a wicked heart just for doing what his father told him to do. He was despised by Goliath in the same chapter. Goliath was offended that the best Israel had to offer was David. And, And the word literally says he despised him. He was despised by Nabal in 1 Samuel 25. When he shows up outside Nabal's estate, he was despised by Michael, daughter of Saul, in 2 Samuel 6, just for having a joyful heart before the Lord. It's incredible. And look at David's words. You in Psalm 18, 118? Look at verse 22. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. David was not just a stone in the house of God. The house of God that that is actually being referred to was being built for David. I don't think you got me there. He and his sons would be a special stone called a capstone that is the house of David. See, God's plan was not just to dwell in a temple. His plan was to dwell in a family. So when David was talking to him about building a building, he said, yeah, your sons will do that, but I'm building a building for you. I'm 
amazed that David understood this. I'm still struggling to understand it. And I have the 27 books of the Newer Testament that he didn't have. Maybe the last of them is the most instructive on the subject and we will eventually get there. But God built the house for Abraham to live in. And he did it through his sons. Abraham was obedient, but he was looking for a city that would be built by God. That couldn't happen if Abraham didn't raise up sons who did godly things. God built the house for David to live in, but he did it through his sons. I think the reason that I'm beginning to get this is when I'm holding Titus on my knee, or Elijah comes by and I can sneak him some yogurt without telling his parents. I figure Brandon will forgive me. He's been stealing out of my fridge since the first day he got to my house. I'm realizing that these guys might be taking care of me. And what I thought I was doing for the Lord out of faith and obedience to the Lord, and I was, was really the Lord doing something for me in a future that I have not begun to grasp. In every generation, God is the architect. He's the builder of a house. But that house is ultimately a house for us. To help illustrate this, Holman Bible Handbook has an article on an insula. Insula is a Latin word that doesn't appear in your Bible. And uh, for, for that reason, I want to explain it. In the Bible, when Jesus says, in my father's house, in John 14. Well, if you live in um, sub-Sahara Africa, and that is translated for you, you think of a house in sub-Sahara Africa. If you are an Inuit that lives uh, somewhere in Alaska on the northern slope, and you hear in my father's house, what you will think of is a dwelling that is made of ice or uh, an igloo. Because whatever a house is to you is what you tend to envision. Well, it's important then to know what did a house look like in Jesus' day. In Insula, in Capernaum, which was Jesus' second home. He spent a lot of time in Nazareth, but he spent more time in Capernaum. How many of you have been to Capernaum? How many of you would like to go to Capernaum? When you go to Capernaum, there is something called an insula sacra. It's called the the sacred home. And uh, that doesn't mean that it is right. It just means that there is a giant church that now stands in a place where there was a first century multifamily dwelling. Now, the reason I want to tell you about that multifamily dwelling is because the first generation that built a house in the promised land would forever own the same land through all generations. If you sold it, you got it back 50 years later or 49 years later. If you rented it, it was based on the number of times until that 50th year, because the land was a tribal inheritance, a family estate. So what that would look like is, if I am the first one there, I build, but what I'm building and I think I'm going to pass to Judah, of course, and Judah thinks he's going to pass to Titus, ultimately is a home for me when I'm not able to take care of myself anymore, isn't it? And what would happen is, I would build the portion for the family of my day. 
I would have built it for five children since that's what I had. But if Judah had more than five children, or if I were um, still living and Jennifer's still living and she'll live a long, long, long time. What would happen is Judah would build onto the house for Sasha. And Brandon would build onto the house for Stephanie. And Cody would build onto the house for Wendy because our tribe had to stay in the same location. Now my home's beginning to look more like an apartment complex, isn't it? That is exactly how some of the ancient writers described the housing in Capernaum. They were committed to living in their ancestral lands. And the point was that somebody had to be responsible for that building project. So I would build, and then when it was time for Judah or Cody or Brandon or one day Gabe to go get their bride, they had to build onto the house as well. They had to make rooms ready. Now, I was responsible as the oldest living member of the family to make sure that the rooms they were building on were suitable. And so if you think of it as an ancient HOA, (laughs) all color choices, all stone choices, all building material choices, it had to run through the oldest living male. Do you know why? Because there was a quality that had to be maintained. And a young man who was in a hurry to get his bride would be like, look, we will live under a lean-to. It's time to get married. But the older man, who had already been married, already had children, and knew what a family would need, would examine the dwelling to tell the son when it was ready. This may be what's behind Jesus' words, When he says, nobody knows the day or the hour, only the Father. The insula in Capernaum looks like a small apartment complex. But in the first century, it was most likely just a family's home. It was a multi-family home. Because with each new marriage, there was a graft on. With each new Child or grandchild, there was a graft on. I want to talk to you about the selection process of building materials for a minute. I know that seems like a strange thing to talk about, but I kind of think we ought to. You remember how David was rejected? I gave you seven ways in which David was rejected, if you were counting. And in Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. He was excited that although nobody thought his life was worth building on, God made his life an example of a completed work. A Davidic king. That's pretty incredible. What you can think of as your rejection might just be paving the way for your regeneration. What might look to you like a reduction might simply be a restoration to the original pattern. What to you might look like you're being scrapped might just be a scraping to get rid of contaminants. See, if you're going to build on something that affects the whole house, then how you build affects every member in the house. Can I tell you that 
Your life affects the person sitting on your left or your right. While I'm preaching this right now, I'm remembering that Alex and Haley Adarmes, they fought to get a child. And the child that now bears their name, man, do I love adoption, is often ill. And they're fighting for that child to become healthy. There's so much that we do that doesn't look rewarding in the moment. But something's happening to Alex and Haley as they do that. They're learning something of the selfless nature of Christ. They're learning what it is to care more about somebody else than themselves. They're learning that you can love somebody that was not family and they now are family. Those are godly attributes, don't you think? And by the way, when you look at that time period right now, and it might even look like a step backwards. They're not in every meeting like they were always in every meeting. How do you measure the fruitfulness that will come from Kaysen's life today? See, You have no idea what your obedience today might be building for you tomorrow. Turn with me to Leviticus 14. When you get to Leviticus 14... Find the 33rd verse. I promise we'll go somewhere with this message. If you can help me string a couple points together, you'll be blessed for it. Verse 33. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When you enter the land of Canaan, which I am giving you as your possession, and I put a spreading mildew, In a house in that land, the owner of the house must go tell the priest, I have seen something that looks like mildew in my house. Man, when you find out what's coming next, you'll realize that you might not want to admit when you have mildew in the house. It's a dangerous proposition. Generally speaking, you would admit to having mildew in your house if you really believed that God would help you get rid of it. But if you didn't really believe that God would help you get rid of it, you might be inclined to hide it because it could result in having to tear down your house. The King James Bible calls this leprosy. When your house has leprosy. Now, King Jimmy was wrong, but it is colorful. You know what I think we are to call it? Sin. When you realize that there is sin in your life, if you really believe that God can fix it, then you don't hesitate to confess it. The reason that you hesitate to confess it is because you're not sure God will fix it and you think your house might get torn down. Look at verse 36. The priest is to order the house emptied before he goes in to examine the mildew so that nothing in the house will be pronounced unclean. After this, the priest is to go in and inspect the house. He is to examine the mildew on the walls, and if it is greenish or red, depressions that appear to be deeper than the surface of the wall, the priest shall go out of the doorway and close up the house for seven days. When the priest examines the house, if there is mildew in the stones of the walls, after the house is cleared, he leaves it for seven days. A perfect time period. Look at verse 39. On the seventh day, the priest shall return to inspect the house. If the mildew has spread on the walls, he is to order that the contaminated stones be torn out and thrown into an unclean place outside the town. 
When you look at this process very carefully, he must have the inside walls of the house scraped and the material that is scraped off dumped into an unclean place outside the town. Then they are to take the other stones to replace these and take new clay and plaster. If the mildew reappears, say reappears. In the house after the stones have been torn out and the house is scraped and plastered, the priest is to go and examine it. And if the mildew has spread in the house, it is a destructive mildew. The house is unclean. It must be torn down. Its stones, its timbers, and all the plasters and taken out of town to an unclean place. To summarize that, a priest presents himself at a house he empties the house and he goes in and examines the house and he says you know what scrape this let's see if we can do something about it then he comes back and if it has regrown he says you know what replace some stones let's see what we can do to save this house if that doesn't fix it then he orders the house to be torn down not one stone Left on another. See, every stone in every generation has to be free from contaminants. Because it's a multi-family, multi-generation house. Each stone is compared against the original pattern. If you've ever done remodeling or been in a house that was remodeled poorly, when a house is remodeled correctly, you should never be able to see that it was remodeled. If there, if you can walk up to a house and go, wow, that's an addition, then somebody made a mistake. Each stone has its place. Nobody wants to tear down a house. The point of this process is to save the house. Scraping is to avoid scrapping. It's not breaking the stones. It's beautifying the stones. What looks like it's reducing the stones is actually restoring the stones. Maybe this building process through men and their family lines by God for the men. Man, that's a confusing statement. God uses the men to build the house. The stone the builders rejected. But it is God's house. So God will use you to do something, but ultimately God owns what is being done. Maybe this is what Isaiah had in mind. In Isaiah 51, turn with me to verse 1. Say there when you're there. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness and seek the Lord. Who are we talking to? Believers or unbelievers? People who are in pursuit of righteousness. By the way, have you ever wondered why you have to chase it? It evades us. It's not our natural state. If you don't do anything, you decay. You're going to have to do something to be in righteousness. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness and who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were cut and to the quarry from which you were hewn. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who gave you birth. When I called him, he was but one, and I blessed him and made him many. We're supposed to be able to look at our father who lives in the same house with us 
and see what a properly cut stone is to look like, what an uncontaminated stone is to look like. And when we add a stone to the house, it's got to match what's already there. And if it doesn't match, it's to be rejected. I'm going to give you a giant hint. That's because dad shouldn't have to live in a house that is degraded. Is what you're building fit for Abraham to live in? Is what you're building fit for King David to live in? The Lord will surely comfort Zion and will look with compassion on all her ruins. He will make her deserts like Eden, her wastelands like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the sound of singing. Comparing each generation's stones to the stones before, make sure that what is being built matches the city whose architect and builder is God. Abraham set out with faithful actions and God was building something for Abraham. By the time we get to David, a thousand years later, David is ecstatic. Not that they're getting a chance to build a temple on earth, but that his family line is a part of a city that God is building to dwell in. This is what Abraham was looking for, and it was literally being built by God through him and for Abraham, for David, and for you. Every generation that goes by, God is adding on to his family, adding on to his house. And as he adds on to his family and he adds on to his house, every stone has to be cut from the same quarry as the first stones. And if not, it will be as obvious as a bad home renovation. You get a holy lawsuit out of that. There is no bond to come in and fix it. So God takes very seriously how we built. Let's take a minute to look practically at this. I'm covering some things that are fairly deep spiritually. I want to show you something practical in this. And then we'll return to the more spiritual side of this subject. In Psalm 127... Starting in verse 1. Somebody say there when there. You don't have to be shy, Rob. I don't mind your bassy voice. (laughs) There. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Now what's wrong with that sentence? Is the Lord building the house or are the builders building the house? Yes, the Lord is the general contractor. He's building a house for David, but David is a builder of the house. God is building a house for Abraham, but Abraham is also building that house. He just didn't know it was for Abraham. He thought it was for God. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. You can think that you are building something in your life for God. And you are. But the greater truth is that he is using your faithful obedience to build something that will bless you. It's both a home and a family. I'm going to prove that to you before the night's over unquestionably. That God is building for you a home, a dwelling, and a family.
match all the way back to Abraham. Look at verse 2. In vain you rise early and stay up late toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. If your life is not about something greater, man, how purposeless does our work feel? There's nothing worse than going to work early and coming home late and feeling as if you're accomplishing nothing. That's why it's hard to persevere, isn't it? Do you think that these men understood that what God was asking them to do and they thought was for God in the end actually would be for them, though? You know, can you imagine if you were contracted to build a house and you met with the owner and you thought, you know, I really need to do a good job for this owner. You discussed all lighting choices. You discussed everything about the house. And then as you completed the house, he handed you the keys. That's what the kingdom is like. You're going to live in what you built for God for an eternity. You better be careful how you build, huh? But praise God. You're going to live in something eternity in eternity that God himself designed. Verse 3, sons are a heritage from the Lord, children a reward for him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are sons born in one youth, one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their enemies at the gate. They're a heritage from the Lord is something that continues from generation to generation. See, what David builds into his children, what those children build into the next, it becomes a heritage. I think all of this will become clearer as we hop into the New Testament. Do you remember when Tory Rasmussen was here? Man, that was a blessing, wasn't it? I loved what he shared. Let's pick up where he left off in Mark 11. From here on out, I'll keep you in the Newer Testament. In Mark 11, in verse 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Tori pointed out that before Jesus clears the temple, he goes and takes a look at it. And that it's really the next day that he comes to clear the temple. Tori's major point was that Jesus was not flying off the handle. It was not a spontaneous act of rage. It was rather premeditated. Tory was absolutely right, but can I tell you it's so much better than even Tory knew. Tory went on to teach us about the temple clearing. He went on to teach us about the corruption in the temple. I want to read that. Let's start in verse 12. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. 
The chief priest and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Now, it's clear from Matthew 21 and Luke 19, which are called the synoptic gospels with Mark, that this event is occurring in the very last week of Jesus' life. These are his last few days before he's crucified. In fact, he presents himself in the temple on the 10th of Nisan, and he's crucified on the 14th of Nisan, and this is the beginning of him doing that. Matthew puts it at his triumphal entry. So does Luke. Last week of his life, when he gets in the temple and he clears it, do you remember what he's quoting? When he says, my house shall be called the house of prayer for all nations, it's Isaiah. Does anybody know where in Isaiah? It's Isaiah 56, and the emphasis of Isaiah 56 is about foreigners that get to be included as physical parts of God's house. Pillars in the temple of God. Now John tells the same story, except it's not. It's not the same story at all. Turn with me to John 2 in verse 11. Let the majority of you get there. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Which miracle is in uh, John 2.11? Uh, numerically? Was it his hundredth miracle? First, that revealed his glory. Now verse 12. After this, after what? That first miracle. He went down to Capernaum with his mother... And his brothers and his disciples. There he stayed for a few days. By the way, Capernaum is where the insula dwelling is. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, he went up to Jerusalem in the temple courts. He found men selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords. And he drove them all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, this is three years before the event that Tori described. It's three years before... Uh, Matthew, three years before Mark, three years before Luke. It's when his first miracle was done. But do you remember that when you entered into a house, if you found a spreading mildew, you were to clear it, you were to walk out of it, a perfect length of time, you're supposed to wait, and then because you desire to save the house, you don't hate the house, you do That house represents stone stacked on stone by faith. If the stones were stacked correctly. Jesus wanted the temple to do well, not bad. Notice that what he quotes about it is completely different too. Zeal for your house will consume me. Do you know where that comes from? That's Psalm 69. And he's only quoting part of the verse because rabbis in this day quoted part of a verse and expected you to know the whole context. You know what the second half of the verse that he stopped in the middle of says? The insults of those that insult you fall on me. 
The first time Jesus gets to the temple and he sees it as his ministry begins, he is astounded at what he's seeing there, but he takes the time to make a whip. He goes in and he clears out the temple and he says when he's correcting them, they insult him. And the disciples remember zeal for his house will consume him. Jesus waits three more years and he goes back to the temple and he finds out that the same exact problem is still going on. And so overnight he plans to clear the temple again the next day. But this time he tells them what they should have been doing all of the time. Isaiah 56, grafting in men from the nations to be a part of God's house. Jesus did his first miraculous sign and went to the Passover or nearly thereafter. He corrects the house of God that was being built by builders who were using the wrong stones. They were changing the architect's designs. They needed to scrape the stones or else they would have to scrap the stones. It had to be God's house and it had to be a building that Abraham would be proud to live in. It had to be a building that David would be proud to live in or it's the wrong kind of house. When he returned three years later, it did not look like Abraham's house anymore. It did not look like David's house anymore. Rather than the men being corrected, they hurled insults at Jesus. Of course... Jesus orders in Matthew 24 for the temple to be torn down. Just three chapters after he clears it in Matthew. Finding an incurable wound. He says you have to tear down every stone. And the Romans did that in 70 AD. It's important to consider how we build the house that God is building in our lives, isn't it? Maybe that's why Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians in the third chapter, verse 12, you can listen to this. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. Was Abraham tested with fire, figuratively speaking? 25 years before you get a son. Would you say that's walking through the fire? Abraham's stone, so to speak, passed through the fire and it survived it. David. David in 2 Samuel 7. Did he pass through the fire? Yeah, he passed through the fire of criticism and he made it. Maybe that's why he was so excited that God would include his family in the house of God. Because his own family didn't think he was worthwhile. If you move to the writings, Daniel. Daniel passed through the fire, didn't he? The fire of captivity, the fire of the furnace. He passed through the fire. What kind of house do those men deserve to live in? Because your acts of obedience are building a house that God has designed that we will all live in. If you were sitting in the living room of your work, would you be proud to have the prophet Daniel there? 
Would you be excited that Abraham was there? You know how men do. I was sitting with Rick Lawhon not long ago. And I looked over and I saw this beautifully crafted wooden speaker that was made to put a phone in. And it amplifies the sound of the phone. And Rick's quite a craftsman. And when I looked at it, I realized that's not an ordinary piece of wood. And I found out he got it from a tree in his grandfather's yard. Then I looked and I said, those are not basic symmetrical cuts. Rick put this together showing great deal of intricacy. And I said, well, Rick, what'd you put so much work into that for? Well, there is an end of the year party that he goes to and all the men are comparing each other's work. What will it be like for us in the kingdom of heaven if we are standing in the same house with men like these and our work is compared with theirs? How important is it that we get this right? You say, well, you know, we we think of it in terms of our reward or loss thereof. No, the Bible speaks of it in terms of a house that we all live in together. We can't even help but be individual about the kingdom to come, even though it's wrong. It's communal. Look at how 1 Peter says it. 1 Peter 2 and verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men. How many times does it seem like the building material is rejected by men but chosen by God? Let me ask you, are you being rejected by the world? Because they rejected Jesus. They rejected before Jesus David. They rejected before David Moses. They rejected before Moses, Abraham. In fact, I don't know if you died, say today, and every major news outlet in the world is covering your death. And everybody is excited about how popular your friends were and how they had positions in high government everywhere. You might have to wonder how it is that Jesus was so holy and so righteous that even the religious in his day couldn't bear with him for a minute without killing him. And we get along so well with the world. Yeah, think on that for a minute. As you come to him, the living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. See, what is precious to God is not precious to men. And what is precious to men is often deplorable to God. That's why we have to be so careful how we build. If you've ever done any home remodeling, what a guy considers to be an amazing getaway, often a lady doesn't want to spend any time in. And I know that's true in reverse. Call them man caves. Right? What God designs and builds, the world hates. And what the world loves, God would reject. How are you doing with that particular test? Do you get along just fine with the world? One of the things that I love about this church is the majority of us really don't. We've become the bane of our family's existence. Spoken against, insulted, talked about terribly. What a high honor that is. Proves that the Lord loves us and shows right where they stand. 
You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Did you notice that Jesus is a living stone and you also are a living stone? You know why? We come from the same quarry. It had to be quarried from the same rock. It goes all the way back to Abraham. Are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. See, you are stones being built into a house. God is the builder and the architect. Anything that you have ever been asked to do is so that you can become the temple of God, which is also going to be your home. The second scripture that Jesus quoted at the second clearing of the temple was that even foreigners could come to the temple of God and they would have a home in it. A name that was better than the sons. Oh man, if we began to understand the complexity of what God is doing. He takes the faithfulness of one generation. And he uses it as a heritage through the generation. So that while you think you are working for God. He is actually building something better for you. Oh, I love him. Do you love him, church? Do you love him tonight? It's 9.08 and we're going to come to a rapid close here. But it wouldn't be fitting to go through these things and not understand them. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, he says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? Man, fire is testing the quality of each man's work because Abraham's going to have to live in the same house with you. Fire is testing the quality of each man's work because David is going to live in the same house with you. You think you are building something for God, but the overwhelming testimony of Scripture is he's building something for you. In John 14, you don't have to turn it, you can if you like. Verse 2, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. You know why? Because the father owned the house. The son was building onto the house to bring his bride into the house. Like an insula. He's not going to bring just any bride home. The quality of the work has got to be tested. The house of God is a multifamily dwelling that God is the builder and the architect of. Every stone must be prepared by him so that it's glorious. I told you that before the night was over, I would prove to you that the house of God was a building, as a building, is both a family and a dwelling. See that bride that we're speaking about? Jesus has to go build on to the Father's house to bring his bride into it. The bride and the building... Are the exact same thing. It's two metaphors. Illustrating the exact same principle. Please turn with me to Revelation 21. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plays. Came to me and said. Come I will show you. The bride, the wife of the lamb. See, what we're seeing first called the bride, we're going to see called something else later. 
But can we agree that Wendy, who is Cody's bride, is now my family? And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. What did he say he was going to see? The bride. What did he show him? The city, because they're the same thing. The idea that we're going to go to some other planet and live in some mansion is patently absurd. And it's not what anybody had envisioned. The truth is, is that you are being built into a multifamily dwelling for God. And you live in the same dwelling with God. The husband and wife become one. The building is joined together. So if you don't like to live with your relatives now, Maybe you don't like to live with your relatives now because they don't like God or are not the bride of Christ. I love this passage. Peyton, make your way up here, would you? Let's start in verse 11. It's shown. The it here is the bride that is the city. It's shown with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel. Like jasper, clear as crystal. It had great high walls with 12 gates and 12 angels at the 12 gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. See, what sounds like we're describing a grandiose building is actually describing a beautiful bride. And everything that she did for the Lord was something that she would be adorned with for eternity. You're going to wear your deeds for an eternity. And by the way, if we filled the earth with gold, gold would cease to be precious. It's only precious because it's rare. This is prophetic language. When you do something that is sacrificial, it's like adorning yourself with gold. It's beautiful to the Lord. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long and as wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 1,200 stadia in length. As wide as it was high and as long. You should draw that sometimes. (laughs) The earth will actually wobble on its axis if you built this. Because it's prophetic language describing how beautiful the bride of Christ is. That the bride of Christ is based on dimensions of 12. Because it's God's government. That she is made of every precious stone that could be made. In fact, look at verse 19. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of what? Precious stone. Because those with mildew were either scraped so they could be made whole. Or they were scrapped because they don't belong in the wedding dress of the bride. Or the city that the bride and the groom live in together. Look at verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city. Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. See, He is the build, He is building you into a precious stone 
He wants to dwell in you, a living stone. But those stones stack together as something that he lives in. Oh, man, if you don't love the fellowship now, you are going to hate eternity. He is also building a house for you to dwell in comprised of the family of God that is called the more perfect temple. In John 17, 23, he prayed for us that we would be one, that he would be one with us and us one with him in eternity We are joined together by the most precious of substances. To illustrate some of what I'm talking about, I wanted to show you a few pictures as we come to a close. You can put whichever one comes up first, Tara. This has been hanging in our lobby a long time. Cody is 16 years old in this picture. Eric Treister is off in the background. You can see a few recognizable faces there. Those sacks, those things that are being carried there, I made Cody carry them. I made Cody carry them because it's good for the young man to bear the yoke. Cody thought that he was doing something for God. He's on a mission trip, right? Doing something for God. What do we know now? God was actually doing something for him. So you couldn't know that then. But the architect had designed for Cody a more perfect plan. And while Cody thought he was serving the Lord, the Lord was actually blessing Cody. Let's take our next one. This, this is Mario Salinas. I thought that what was happening was I was blessing Mario. I thought that I was confirming in Mario's life a calling. And that was happening. I say, oh... I'm so happy, Lord, that I could do something for you on this weekend trip. And this man would give us his daughter for my son. Ten years later, you don't know what your act of obedience today is God building you something for tomorrow. And by the way, who's standing right behind me? Let's take the next one. This is a particularly fun one for me. I'm prophesying to Mario right now as a single man, not knowing that he has a family. And I'm prophesying to him, telling him that I see a woman with him that I'm hoping is his wife and four or five daughters standing with him. Are you married? That's happening at that moment. And standing in the background is Cody, who is going to marry one of those daughters. You think that you are doing something for God and what he is actually doing is building something for your future that you never could have conceived of. And by the way, right behind Mario is my actual firstborn son, Judah, who's just a baby at this point, man. Look how tiny he is. I had no idea that when we met the Eregenas and we were laboring forward doing something for God... That what God was actually doing was building a house for us. You have no idea what God will do if you give him the opportunity by showing a little bit of faithfulness over time. He is building for you a future, a house, a house that David began to glimpse at. And he got giddy with excitement and had nothing to do with the temple on earth. And here's the beautiful sowed in it all. The house that he was building for David, the house that he was building for Abraham, the house that he was building for Daniel, 
It's the same house that he built for us. There's one city whose builder and architect is God. And we all live in it together. So we better be careful how we build. You can count crops that were produced by perseverance. But how could you ever measure the extent to which you were being made beautiful so that God could dwell? See, I'm hard on you guys. I've told you many times, where's your 30? Where is your 60? Where is your 100 fold? I'm going to tell you that again next week. But today, what I want to tell you is you're being made beautiful for the Lord. And if you didn't accomplish anything else in your life, other than let him scrape the muck off of you and place you in his family where he wanted you to be, a house worthy for him to dwell in, well, that is something, isn't it? God is not breaking you today. He's beautifying you. He's not reducing you in order to ridicule you. He's restoring you. He's regenerating you. Because God loves to romance the stone. You know, that ridiculous movie came out in 1984 and Danny DeVito was in it. Michael Douglas is in it and Kathleen Turner is in it. And the whole point of the show is that they're chasing a precious stone and they hate each other at first. They're antagonistic towards each other at first and they fall madly in love. Have you been antagonistic towards the Lord preparing you as a building material? Have you hated every moment of it? I was at a party the other night and I was watching two people that I love very much. The husband asked for something and the wife gladly smiled, went and got it. Husband didn't even notice. It was handed to him and he said, hey, uh, I'm sorry, would you, would you get this? Something was wrong with the order. Behind his back, her whole body language changed. She stomped off. Angry, frustrated, went and got what he asked. Came back, husband never even noticed, just sweet, innocent. Convicted me terribly. I realized how many things that the Lord has asked me to do that I do, but with an attitude as hideous as that woman's was. See, if we resent the scraping, then we stay mildewed. If we don't let that flesh be cut away from us. Guys, you get a chance to help your chil- or your wife with your children. <laughs> Hold one of your little ones on your lap and you really think you've done something. Because, man, you've watched them for 20 minutes. And all 20 minutes you're ticked because she's taking too long with the other four that she's bathing. See, you don't realize what God is doing is he's preparing you to be a dwelling for eternity that, that, that matches Abraham, that matches Daniel, that, that matches David. When you measure yourself up against those kinds of precious stones, well, can I say that you want to you do over? Let me ask, do you have a tendency to view the pursuit of the precious stone It's something other than romantic. It's not God loving you. It's him punishing you in your mind. We we have a right 
but it's not to what we think. We should never view God as punishing us. But you might view punishing circumstances as Him preparing you. My hope for this church is that you'll look around you and you'll see some amazing things happening here. That what you're going to notice is that through the generations, God is giving us spouses. He's giving us children. He's giving us something that we can be proud of. And if you embrace every day, it's not that he's punishing you by making you wait for what you want, but he's preparing you. He's ruthlessly perfecting you. So that you won't have to hang your head if you share a bunk with Father Abraham. Well, that's an entirely different perspective, isn't it? Could you stand to your feet?